Guests should have prayed for me because I'm going to attempt the impossible and try and cover both lessons in one week. So uh, um, you may have to record and then play it back later on time and a half. Um, anyway, I don't know. So um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to cover lesson three, which was last week's. So we're going to uh, cover that quickly and then uh, hit this week's lesson as well. And this week finishes up this um, idea that we've been talking about the last few weeks of the big story, looking at from creation until we finish up today, uh, the story that God has set forth that we are all partakers of that story. We've been looking at Adam and Eve and looking at the choices they made and how it's affected the story up until this point. And so we're going to finish looking at that today. Uh, And then next week, we're going to start with a different topic. So we see, uh, and so this is uh, the, the, the third lesson, if you have your book, uh, the fill in the blanks, we'll hit those uh, quickly uh, today, and the PowerPoint people, person, sorry, not people, she is only one, Mallory's going to keep up with us today. But we see that uh, we, we've looked at Adam and Eve, we've looked at the choices they have, uh, we've, we've looked at how that they rejected God's plan. So they had a choice, they could eat of everything live in the garden in, in, in perfection, and the only thing they could not do was eat of the tree. That was one thing, and they rejected God's plan through their choices. However, we've seen that God, uh, despite the fact that there was consequences, He mercifully spared them uh, their, the, the penalty of death in that moment. Uh, he sacrificed an animal, and their death The blood of that animal covered their sins, although there was spiritual death. But we see that the setting uh, of everything has changed. They're kicked out of paradise. They're no longer in the Garden of Eden, and now they have the curse of work. They have the curse of childbirth. Uh, They have, not childbirth, pain in childbirth, sorry. (laughs) I guess sometimes it's just all a pain, but... (laughs) Um, So we see all that happens, and, and we see from that point on that every generation following has bounced back and forth between choosing God, choosing their own way, and, and, and that struggle has continued ever since. But we find that despite humanity's overall rejection, I think it would be safe to say that as a, as a society from that point till now, there has been a lot of rejection of God, that God continues to offer the invitation to fellowship with Him. He's like the guy that won't take no for an answer from the girl that he really likes. He keeps pursuing. He keeps continually offering the invitation. And it's not just an ambivalent uh, uh, response by mankind, but many times it's an outright rejection of God. But he just doesn't seem to take no for an answer. And we would see that from the time of Adam and Eve that he would continue to continually talk to man. We see that he calls Abraham and he calls him to a covenant. And the whole point of it was that he would have a people that would serve him. He would have a people that would follow after him. And so God continues throughout humanity this pursuit, really. God pursues his people across the centuries. That's a long time. Centuries, thousands of years, God has continued to pursue his people. I'm thankful that God didn't ever quit. I'm thankful that at some point God didn't say, you know what? I'm going to take humanity's no for the final answer because I would have missed out. I'm thankful that he didn't take my no for the final answer. I know nobody here, as soon as God speaks to you, you answer, right? In the affirmative every time. The first time you felt his spirit stirring in your life, you ran to the altar and you repented of every sin. And since that point, it's been, right? No. He still pursues us. And I'm thankful that he does. And so for thousands of years, we find that God is pursuing. But at the center of this pursuit, we find, of course, we read in the Old Testament that, of course, there was no Messiah, but they have an altar that is the center of of their of God's pursuit that they have to bring sacrifices they have to uh, do all of the rituals and, and and routine that go along with it but throughout the Old Testament even we catch glimpses that this system is a temporary system of the law 
but that it serves to point to a better lasting means by which humanity would be redeemed or bought back from the penalty of sin. So those are a couple blanks there. It's a temporary system, but we see that it points to something and it's a more lasting means by which humanity would be redeemed from their sins. I'm glad that I don't live in that temporary time. I'm glad that I live in a time where my sins can be permanently redeemed. I'm not just pushing them back for another year. In Jeremiah chapter 31, several verses here, it says, Behold, the days are coming. This is one of those verses that very obviously points to something else. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, let me finish reading it first. Didn't mean to interrupt myself. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now I'll go back to my interruption. How many of you sometimes wish that your walk with the Lord would just be a little bit different? That God would operate in a different way? I do sometimes, and I think this verse kind of encapsulates how sometimes I wish that God would work in my life. It says that in the days of their fathers, I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. I was a husband to them. Now, how many of you would like, you've ever been in a point in your life where you really didn't know what to do, you weren't feeling God necessarily, or you couldn't figure out what to do in a decision, and you wish that God would just come down and take you by the hand and say, here you go. And, you know, sometimes he might have to pull you kicking and screaming, but at least you'd be in the right place, right? That would be nice sometimes. I, I, there's been plenty of times where I thought, I wish he would just tell me flat out, point blank, what to do. All this figuring out stuff and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, just come down, slap me upside the head and say, this is what you're supposed to do. Be a whole lot easier. But understand the comparison here. He says that that was the old way and that was the way of the law. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not... Oh, murder and kills the same thing. Thou shalt not steal. It's very black and white. And, and he says that I, I led you by the hand out of Egypt. That, that some of those Egyptian, I mean, some of those Israelites didn't have a choice. The Egyptians told them to get out. They said, we want you to, to leave. Now, how easy would that be if, if sin got, so, it was, got to the place where the devil said, I want you to leave sin and just serve the Lord. That would make witnessing a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? People show up and say, the devil told me to come to church and get saved. The Egyptians sent them out. But he, and that sounds a lot easier in my natural mindset. That sounds a lot easier. But he says, that is the old way. In fact, that is the harder way. The law is harder. It points towards something. So he says, I used to lead you by the hand and all of these different things and, and, and you left Egypt, but that's the old way. I'm going to give you a better way. Now, even though sometimes I wish it was different, I'm living in the better way. He said, I'm going to write it in your hearts. I'm going to put my law in your minds. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. He said, what you have now, despite the fact that sometimes I wish it was different, is so much better now than what they used to have. And sometimes I just take it for granted. But having it in my heart is so much better than being led by the hand. Even though sometimes I don't think it is. He says, every man's, you won't have to go and say, know the Lord, for everyone shall know me. Everyone shall know me. Now, that's an important thing when we look in the scope of the whole story, that every person is going to know God, that he puts something inside each of us, every, inside every single person that is pulling us. And as you look back on your life, if there were moments when you were not living for the Lord, you can look back now and reflect and recognize some of those moments that, oh, that was not this or that, but that was God pulling on me. And I'm thankful that he still does that in our lives. 
But we see all of this taking place, and, and, and we see that there's this altar. We see that this is the old way. We know that there's pointing towards something, and, and we know what that change is, that as the scene changes, we know that the altar is replaced by a manger. And now we have a young couple of Mary and Joseph, and they utter for the first time his name, Jesus. They call him Jesus. And we know that Jesus is what replaced the altar. And we find that in this story, in this grand scheme of things, that God himself comes to save his people. Now, I know that this is not a revelation to most of us, but I think it's important for us to recognize and remember those facts that it was God himself that came to save me. He did not just send anything else. He did not make just another way, but he came himself to save me. And so as we see that Jesus enters uh, onto the scene, that, that it's now not so focused around a temple sacrifice, it's not focused around the laws, it's not focused around tradition, but now we see the story changes to a man that has uh, 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 wisdom, divine wisdom. We see miracles begin to take place that have never happened like this before. We see people flocking to him. And, and what his life does is it really defies the logic. It defies human nature. And, and people can't wait to see what Jesus does next. And yet there's something that still plays in the reader's mind as we read this. Because all along the prophets, yes, have prophesied about a Messiah. They have prophesied that someone would come. But we also see that they also prophesy about a sacrifice that that Messiah will have to make. And everything points to Jesus being the Messiah. Everything points to this being the perfect man that has been prophesied about. And yet we know in the story that there's a sacrifice coming which doesn't seem to fit. The all-conquering hero shouldn't die. He should make it in the end. But this hero, Jesus, is as merciful as he is mighty. Because his life, although the miracles are mighty, although raising people from the dead is a mighty thing, he is not just concerned with the mighty acts. He is merciful. He is here in mercy. And he sees the generations of people that have been bound by the curse of their sins. People that are fighting their shame. They are incapable of ridding themselves of their sins. And they are constantly overcome in the fight with sin. And so we find Jesus... The hero of the story. We find Jesus, the one who is supposed to be all-conquering. We find him kneeling in a garden. We find him struggling with his will. We find him praying. We find soldiers approaching. We find them taking him captive. They take him to a cross. Of course, we know after a, a mock trial, after torture, we see the crowd yelling, crucify him. It seems such an odd turn in the story, as we see the same people that have flocked and followed after Jesus now yelling for his death. I think it points to something in all of our own lives that is the key of this big story. What was it about those people that allowed them to be standing next to Jesus a few weeks before, calling him to be their king, and now they're saying, crucify him? Were the Pharisees that persuasive as they went through the crowd that day, saying, you should say crucify him? Possibly there were some, but everybody? You see, they had knowledge about Jesus. They had heard his teachings. They had seen miracles. And all of that was not enough to convince them not to say crucify him. What is this whole thing based upon? What is this story based upon all the way back to Adam and Eve? What was it that Satan attacked? A relationship. You see, that crowd that day had seen all that Jesus had done. They had heard all the words that he spoke. They had seen people raised from the dead. But really, when it came down to it, they had no relationship with God. They had no relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we see ourselves that it's not enough just to know about God. It's not enough just to see the things that God does. But no, He is not calling us to see the miraculous. He is not calling us to know more about Him. The first thing He calls us to is a relationship with Him. And without that relationship, we do not have a sure foundation. That relationship must be the basis of everything. 
How many, I'm sure you've seen people over the years and you wonder, how can they know what they know and have seen what they've seen and still reject God? There it is. Because you can see the things that God has done. You can hear the same sermons. But if there's no relationship, if there is no relationship, before long you can find yourself saying, crucify him. So we find the crowd yelling, crucify him. And we find Jesus, of course, being nailed to the cross. We know that he died for our sins. We know that he died so we did not have to pay for our sins. And we know that mercy triumphed over justice that day. And he became the payment for our freedom. We see as Jesus has died after his death that the disciples bury him in a tomb. And the tomb is sealed and Roman soldiers are placed outside because the political maneuverings of that day are paranoid. Wow. Politicians were paranoid back then? We live in a different world today. But they were worried about the political fallout if they, they were concerned that the disciples would try and steal the body and then convince people that Jesus had risen from the dead. However, they did not realize that the big story that was being written and the hero of that story were more powerful beyond their imagination. And we see the, the, lady, the, the, the women arrive at the, at the tomb and they're wondering on the way if how they're going to move the stone, how this is all going to work, yet they know they need to go and do something. And of course, they get there and the stone is rolled away as we were reminded of the Carmen song and it bounced a time or two. And an angel stepped inside and said, yo, I'm Gabriel, who are you? Anyway, wow, we should have had church last week. (laughs) And so the women peer into the tomb, and of course, we know it is empty. We know that from this side, but imagine in that moment as you look into a tomb where you know that somebody should be, and they are not. That's a little freaky. (laughs) Angels appear beside them. The women collapse, bowing their faces to the ground, and the angels explain what has happened, that nothing nothing untoward has happened, that his body has not been stolen, that they are not at the wrong place, but Jesus is now risen. We find that Peter and John now race to the tomb, and they have the same thing. They didn't believe the women. They thought they were blind. They didn't know what they were talking about, and so they have to see for themselves, and they find the same thing, that the tomb is empty. And we find ourselves, if we can put ourselves in that place, imagining how the emotions and the thoughts that are going through their mind, that they have taken to the ultimate of lows, and now they're at the ultimate of highs. And we see and we know that Jesus rose from the grave, and he rose to take dominion over the power of death. That's, that's a couple of the blanks in there. But Jesus rose to take from, from the grave to take dominion over the power of death. It is not enough for Jesus just to die. Had he only died, though his death would be admirable, greater love had no man than this. He could do no more for you and I, humanity, than simply provide inspiration of a noble martyr. But we do not sit here today. We're not getting ready to lift our hands in worship of some noble martyr. No, we are getting ready to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who we serve today. And his resurrection proves that he is more than just a martyr. His resurrection proves that he was more than just a good man. Jesus came back from back to life from death and he proved once and all his deity in that moment. He proved once and for all his power and he proved his complete authority over everything in heaven and earth. And scripture tells us don't let the cross, don't let salvation, don't let these things be in vain in our life. And I do not want the resurrection or the cross to be in vain in my life. I don't want him to have died and have arose from the grave and that be in vain in my life. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 says this, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And I think we're very good about making sure the cross is not in vain. We know that salvation, we know all that is entailed with that. But I don't want the resurrection to be in vain either. 
And so the question becomes, what do I need resurrected in my life? Because he has the power to resurrect that. He has the power to bring dead things back to life. And so I don't lose hope in situations. I don't quit in situations. I don't give up when it seems impossible because the resurrection is not in vain. And if he has the power back then to do it, he has the power to do it in my life today. It's also important to understand that this is why I need the Holy Ghost in my life, which is a symbol of the resurrection. It is symbolic of that because baptism is symbolic of the cross, of death and burial. But it, the, the, the salvation is not complete. The whole story is not complete unless there is a resurrection. I have to have the Holy Ghost in my life. And so we see the open grave and we know the angels have explained the resurrection. We understand that Jesus defeated Satan and he brought, uh, and, and Satan's plan to bring eternal destruction and torment to all of humanity is broken in that moment by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's a powerful verse. We just fly through it. He did not just destroy death. Death is an outcome. it's, It's separate. But it says that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Let me tell you, he did not just destroy death. He did not just overcome the grave, but he destroyed and overcame him who had the power of death, him who had the power of the grave. Let me just remind you that it's not just the grave that's defeated today. It's not just death that is defeated today, but Satan was defeated that day. He has no power unless I give it to him. He has no power over my life. He destroyed Satan that day. He did all of this. And believe it or not, we're about finished with lesson three and we got to move on to four. He did all of this. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed death. He overcame the grave. He did all of those things. He has all that power. And he still may not have dominion in your life because of free will. All the way back to the choice. The the story starts with a choice as well. That's amazing to think that he can conquer Satan, but he may not have you. Because I have a choice. You see, I'm the only one, I'm the only thing that has to surrender authority to him. Satan did not have to surrender authority. What does it say? He went and took the keys. He didn't ask Satan, would you mind? (laughs) Would you mind allowing me to have, okay, you don't want me to take the keys. Can I make a copy? Can I get a copy of them at least? No. He went in and took them. You know, the stones rolled away about the time or two. You need to listen to the rest of it. (laughs) Because the devils were having a party in that song. I I can't remember the rest of it. I do do remember more of Satan biting the dust. My wife knows that one too. We can reenact that if you guys want. (laughs) Right now. I really get into that part. But he did all of this. He has dominion over all of that but he may not have control in your life because he will not take that control. So I understand that there's something that has to take place within my own life. And as we look at all that Jesus did, we understand the power and the hope that we now have is simply wrapped up in one word, the gospel. We have the gospel. I guess that's two words. Gospel. The gospel. It's all wrapped up in that. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected to redeem humanity. And in fact, if I could put it this way, if we go all the way back to the start, when Adam and Eve fall, they they make their choice, and they begin to hide from God, and they hear His voice calling their name. I believe the gospel is that voice of hope that we still hear today. I believe there's people right now that I don't know what they did last night, but I know it wasn't good. That wherever they are right now, there's a voice that if they'll listen, they can hear. And there's people that are going to hear it this morning, and they're not going to know exactly what it is. They're going to feel shame. They're going to feel guilt, because that's the emotions I feel when God calls on me. 
Wait, wait. Now, now that's not right. I need to change and realize that he's convicting me and that he can get rid of that shame and guilt. But when I come to an altar weeping, it's not because I feel good usually. It's because he's convicting me. Something's going on. And there's going to be people this morning sitting in their house or wherever they are. And there's at least one person that's going to shed a tear because they've heard that voice calling to them today. The gospel still calls to us today. Peter wrote, the precious blood of Christ redeems us. And Peter's metaphor of redemption recalls the metaphor of a slave being freed from his master by the payment of a ransom. And in that sense, every human is a slave to the curse of sin. But Jesus paid our ransom so we can be redeemed, bought, and released from our bondage of sin. This is our hope and faith. I'm thankful that Jesus redeemed me. I'm thankful that he paid the price. I'm thankful that he rose from the dead so that I can now have power and dominion and authority in my life as well. I'm thankful for what he's done in my life. I think we should thank him right now for what he's done in each of our lives. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for your salvation. And Lord, sometimes it's easy to take it for granted, but Lord, I'm so thankful for the sacrifice that you made, that you were merciful, that even though I deserved what was coming my way, you were merciful and reached down. And Lord, I still want to hear the gospel in my life calling to me. I still want to hear the good news in my own life. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, for that hope that you give us. Lesson four. So we have the gospel. We, we know what he did for us. The sun's first rays lit the waves as they lapped against the shores of Patmos. He rolled to his knees instinctively as his eyes opened. It was the Lord's day. His body shivered at the chill from the damp stone floor, but as he whispered words of worship, John's spirit was transported elsewhere. A voice like a trumpet, visions of seals and angels, it was all beyond the scope of human reasoning. Like a passenger being carried along, John witnessed the final act of the big story. Amid all the sights so specific that they could be categorized, counted, inventoried, an unusual expanse broke open before him. And instantly, John knew the sight was a crowd of people, but his mind staggered at the magnitude of it. All previous attempts at cataloging failed here. This great crowd would be impossible to number. So as he scanned the enormous crowd, he realized with awe that the people were from every tribe, every people, people groups that he couldn't even place or had seen before. The untold millions of faces of every color were yet unified. White robes flowed about them and they held palm branches. In unison, they began to shout, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. At once, all of heaven responds. Angels, elders, and four beasts surrounding the throne fell to their faces and proclaimed, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As John peered into that land where time is no more, one elder pushed near and turned to him with a question. Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? John took in the scene and shook his head, pondering the question. And sensing the magnitude of the moment, he offered, Sir, you know. The elder nodded and proclaimed, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. As John surveyed the innumerable crowd, then as the elder swept his hand across and continued, Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. And lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And with that, the seventh seal was opened. And silence falls across the heavenly stage. In time, the vision unfolds further with wonders almost too fantastic to comprehend. And when the vision reached its conclusion, John fell on his face at the appearance of Jesus himself. His mind raced, his spirit yearned. He wept as the realization dawned that he must come back from the the vision of such rich communion with Jesus Christ. Yet as he began to pen the words that would give masses upon masses a glimpse of the future, hope leapt in his heart. 
he had a promise. Jesus was coming. Soon he would lead John to these living waters and wipe away every tear. We finish this week looking at the conclusion of of this. We find that his news of Jesus and his resurrection begins to spread that uh, the, the, the then known world is rocked. People are rocked and, and the world itself is shaken. In fact, we find the scripture says that those who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus were the same ones who would then turn the world upside down. There's a surprise twist to the story. First, you think the hero of the story is executed. Just like many other stories, it's a tragedy. Then all of a sudden, we find that he's resurrected and we find, we think, wow, this is the end of the story. This is where it all, the, the grand finale is Jesus is taken up into heaven. Surely this would be the end, but we find that the story continues and that's not what happens because now the focus shifts from Jesus to his inner circle and his disciples as they begin to travel across the world to proclaim the story of Jesus Christ, to proclaim that he is victorious over the grave and invite others to be a part of the story. This story, we find, takes us to the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and they pray there. And yet again, we see another high point as we read about people praying and tongues of fire appearing over top of them. That would be something to see. The audience watches as suddenly crowds begin to gather. We read the story that it's now just, it, it, was, it was a few seeing Jesus go up. Now there's 120 in an upper room with flames of fire over their head. And now there's thousands gathered from around the world who hear these 120 speaking in their own native languages as the Holy Ghost speaks through them. And we find that God's Spirit is poured out now in the New Testament and it's poured out for every person. Every person. We see a new day dawn. We see the story takes a new course as these believers begin to go around the world with the message of salvation, with the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ. But of course, we know that even though Satan has been conquered, he doesn't quit. He tries to keep going, and so he begins to fight back, and the opponents to the message arise up. We find that those in political power, those, those in control, begin to have a reign of physical terror as they try to destroy the early church. We find imprisonments, we find killings, we find all kinds of persecution happening as people are killed for their faith, imprisoned for their faith. And suddenly, as we read the story, there's a message that becomes clear, and I'm sure you can agree as you hear it. And it's this, the path of the believer is not without conflict. Remember when he thought serving the Lord would mean it would all be smooth sailing? Then you realized you didn't even have a boat? <laughs> all you had was a kayak with a hole in the bottom? Acts chapter 14, it says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, ex- exhorting, exhorting, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, Wow, I don't even want to read this. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> now, I really like preaching Acts 2:38, 37 and 38, where they say, what must we do to be saved? That's pretty simple. Here's what you must do. There is no choice. There is no turning. This is what you must do. You don't have an option. I'd like to change that must here. We must, through many tribulations. Oh, man. We might, through many tribulations, possibly, it perchance could happen. Sounds a lot better. He says we must. So we find that any, in many ways, we find the disciples persecuted, the early church persecuted, yet we see something else. Something else that is not visually discernible. There's not really... A moment, but there's, you can sense it throughout the book of Acts. As persecutions take place, you can still find that there is a peace. If you would, underline the book. There's something behind the words of destruction and terror and torment. There's still something that is holding them up. And it, 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 we find that even in the book of Acts, as Luke writes, that, that, that there's an invisible something you and I know That even though the hero, the main character of the story has ascended to heaven, it doesn't mean he's quit working. 
I'm thankful that he hasn't quit working. We find that he equips his people to tell the story to others so that they can join the story too. He's given us power. Acts chapter, or Matthew chapter 28, we read this on Wednesday night. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, that's a promise that we need to grab a hold of, that he is with us even to the end of the age. And I know I can't see him. I know sometimes it's tough to even feel him occasionally, but I can hold on to that promise that he is still with me even to the end of the age. And he has given me the power to spread the story, the gospel, to everyone else. And so we join the story We join the story. Isn't that something, the story that we've learned all the way back in the Garden of Eden? We are now a part of that story. And we join with the martyrs of the New Testament. And while we may not suffer the same physical fates, we are likewise on a journey to share the story with others and be who Jesus has called us to be. We are called upon to share the story with others. While centuries separate us, one day we will join those of the early church. And every single one of us has a destination, a greater hope. At this point, if if we could see it all freeze, if we could see from the start to the end, if we could see the whole story just pause for a moment, and we step back and look at all of Scripture, we can learn some truths about God from this whole big story. A few truths. The first one is, is this big story shows us that God is the sovereign creator and ruler. We see that, not just from the story of creation, but we see throughout the entire story that he is the sovereign creator and ruler. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, that in heaven and, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And because of that, what that means is because he has shown himself to be the creator and ruler, the creator and the ruler throughout the entire story. Colossians tells us that all things were created by him, that all things were created through him and for him. Because of those things, I learned from the story that I can trust God. I can trust him because he is the one who is in charge of it all. He is the one even in the middle of a mess that I know is still the ruler. He is the one that I know in the middle of that mess that he can create something extraordinary, something new, something glorious. Because of those things, I know that I can trust God. The second thing the story shows us is that God loves humanity and reveals himself to us, inviting us into the key word relationship. As we look throughout the the whole story, we see from Noah to Abraham, all the way we see God continually doing something. And it is He is continually making a way of escape. And the reason for the escape is not to get us out of a jam. It's not to get us out of whatever mess we're in right now. The reason He provides a way of escape, if you would follow that way all the way, (laughs) you know where you would end up? in a relationship with God. (laughs) He's not just getting you out of your mess. He is leading you into relationship. Now, you and I know that we're just glad to get out of the mess, and we forget about the relationship a lot of times, and a lot of people do that. But he is lead, it's not just a random door he opens. It's not just a random path he starts. No, when he makes a way, it's a way to relationship with him. He is intent on that, inviting us into relationship. We see that from Noah. We see it from Abraham all the way to a manger where we find he reveals himself, inviting us into a relationship. The third thing the story reveals is God as the Redeemer, and he is intent on restoring relationship with fallen humanity. He invites us to relationship, and he is intent on restoring that relationship. You ever thought about this? God, he not only made us and loves us, but he loves us so much. He loves us really too much to watch from a distance 
without saving you from your own mistakes. He can't help himself. Really, if you want to say it in a, in a negative way, he's just a busybody. He can't stop himself from getting involved in your life. Those who say God's distant, no. You can look back over your life and you see the fingerprints of God everywhere. Because Not because he's a busybody and wants to know your business, although he does. But he loves you that much. He loves you so much that he's like, okay, they said, no, I, I just need to back off for a little bit. Oh, I can't help it. I can't help it. i got to do something in them because I want to restore a relationship with them. <laughs> we could go off on a tangent for a while, but we got to finish up. <laughs> Despite the many times that I have rejected God throughout my entire life, the hero of the story, Jesus, has been working to draw us back to him to provide a way to be redeemed and to bring us into right standing with him despite all of my best attempts to reject him. He still is searching for me. The fourth thing the big story shows us is that God uses redeemed humanity in his mission to reach others and to rule and reign with him for eternity. He uses you and I, redeemed humanity, to further his mission to reach others and, and to rule and reign with him in eternity. In this revelation, if we could close our eyes, if we could, I don't know why we can't, but if we could, and we could see all the characters from out, throughout history, from the start of the story till this moment, if we could picture them from your little picture Bible you have, if we could see that God is creating one story. Although we have individual stories sitting here today, He's really creating one story. And every single one of us are linked in that story. The early church, the Old Testament, we're all linked. And if suddenly we could realize, which is really hard to do because of our minds, if we could realize that God has been orchestrating His people throughout every part, to be a part of his plan, to invite people from every nation, every culture, every society into the big story. If we could somehow catch a glimpse that we are part of something so large that really we can't imagine it. But he is orchestrating the entire thing. And then if we could understand that in this story of all of these millions of people all of the millions of people, you would think that you would have a small part. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Understand that there's no extras, no little characters in his story. You see, I can't figure out how he can take millions of people, orchestrate them all together, put them all into the story, millions of people, and yet he still cares about my story. It's incomprehensible because, you know, we come to decisions in our life where we say, well, we just need to look at the big picture. And that usually means someone's got to compromise, someone's got to sacrifice, someone's story has to be played down a little bit. But God somehow manages to orchestrate the big story and care about your story as well. Every person matters. Every person is a part of this story. And we have a role to play in that, that we are in, involved in reconciliation. You and I have been called into reconciliation with Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only sacrificed himself to rescue humanity, but he then empowered you to minister and reconcile other people. So as I look at my life, I don't know if, if you guys remember, it was, it's been a, a little bit ago now. Uh, it was Ryan Kidder came and preached about the ministry of reconciliation. Everyone in here has a ministry of reconciliation. That means where there's distance, bring it together. So look for conflict. That's where you can minister. Don't, I didn't say create it so you can minister. <laughs> I'm going to start a fight so I can see the... <laughs> it's like what Paul says, should we sin more so we get more grace? God forbid. No. But we are all called to participate in the ministry of reconciliation, which is what Jesus did. So how, what am I reconciling in my life? Who am I reconciling together? All of these truths play out. 
all the truths, that he's creator and ruler so I can trust him, that he's inviting us to relationship, that he is intent on restoring that relationship, and that he has called all, reconciled all of us to then reconcile others. All of these play out, not in some simple start to finish like we would put together a children's story, but in the grand scheme of humanity. For not only is God without beginning or ending, but he desires to commune with us eternally. And this grand story of his is the master plan for all of humanity that goes beyond the bounds of time. You see, our natural eyes gravitate toward the cares around us. It's natural. It's natural for me to look at what's going on. And in those, we may fail to recognize that God is actually orchestrating a big story. It's easy for me just to see my small situations in the grand scheme of things and fail to recognize that God is doing something. However, God has put eternity in our hearts. Eternity. God desires eternal life for us with Him. And He's put it inside of us. It's said all the way back in Jeremiah that you're not going to go to your neighbor and say, no, God, it's going to be in your hearts. And inside your heart is something that is pulling you towards spending eternity with Him. God gave John a vision of the eternal hope to come. And in Revelation, John paints this picture of our eternal rest in heaven. John saw an innumerable host of people from every nationality who bowed before the throne. Those believers John saw entering their reward had come through tribulation. However, they stood spotless before the throne because they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. (laughs) Their reward, John described, is a promise that gives you and I hope and has given millions of people hope throughout the ages. Revelation chapter 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, that's where God is heading. That's where he's orchestrating all of humanity to get to. And that's where he is orchestrating your life to get to is that one day you will stand in the place where he can shepherd you from his throne, where he can wipe away every tear from your eye, where the sun shall not strike you, where hunger and thirst shall not be anymore. You see, that's where he is orchestrating the story to go. In heaven, the hardships of surviving life in a fallen world will be gone. He'll dry our tears. We won't have reason to cry again. He won't just dry the tears, but there won't be a reason to cry anyway. The daily struggles of this world, hunger, work, coping with all the things that are just a part of being human will be no more. And the Lamb will take care of us for eternity. That's pretty nice. How many of you like going away for a trip? For a little bit anyway. You like staying someplace where they've got breakfast? (laughs) Where they've got a little uh, person with a cart that comes around? And they've got clean towels, unless you're being uh, eco-friendly and you're reusing yours for a few days. And makes your bed. You can leave your bed in whatever state you want. And you come back and it's made. Isn't that great? Sometimes you just mess it up extra to see, give them, you know, test them out a little bit. (laughs) Not really. Flip the mattress over and everything. But it's kind of nice. When you you walk downstairs and, and you know... Depending on where it is, it may be a a great breakfast, but there's something there. You don't have to do anything except get it. That's pretty nice. And when the eggs are running low, you just kind of have to wait for the person to come out and look in there. And you know what they do? They bring more out. Isn't that great? It's kind of nice to be taken care of. Just think about all, and that's just little things. Like I don't have to make breakfast. I don't have to make my bed. I don't have to wash the towels. I don't have to take out the trash. Someone does it for me in the room. Isn't that great? Now just think about all the stuff that we struggle with here and now. Just think about the stuff you're struggling with right now. No more. No more. There'll be no reason to cry. He's going to take all of that away. That's where he's orchestrating your life to go is to that point. But most important, and I've got to finish up. I've, I've just about done it. 
Most important, above all of that, above the Lord making your bed in heaven in your mansion and serving you a continental breakfast, giving you tissues, wipe away your tears. Most important is we are going to enjoy what, what was the reason at the very start? Relationship. Most important, at the end of this, we're going to enjoy an intimacy of communion with him forever. In Revelation 7.15, it says, For he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. We feel his spirit, God dwelling among us. What a hope that is, that God will dwell among us. As John pens that line, perhaps he thought back to the very first act of the big story and how Adam and Eve walked in the garden with Almighty God. Perhaps with awe and longing, John joyfully conveys this vision of returning to a place of total, eternal access to God, forever free. Can you imagine having eternal access? access to God eternally he's right there and I don't know how he does it but he's there for every one of us at the same time but we have eternal access to God and so when I see where God is heading when I see where God is taking where he is orchestrating humanity itself and I'm part of that big story when I see how he's orchestrating my story and I see towards where he's heading now I can say that this is a story that has a beginning but it's a story that has no end. Not only is the story continually being written every single day, but even in eternity, it's eternal. The story never ends. It never gets old. You never close the book on it. It's never done and put away. But my relationship with God, when I get to that point, will continue forevermore. What a hope that is to have in my life now. That even in the struggles, even in the tough times now, even in the, in the rough moments now, I know that God is still in control. I can trust him. That he is pushing me towards a very certain end. And that one day, he's going to wipe away every tear. That one day, those troubles will be gone. That one day, I will be in relationship with him like I can only imagine right now. As we stand this morning... I want to make sure I'm there. I want to make sure that I spend eternity with him. Despite whatever may happen now, I want to make sure I, I make my life turn towards him every opportunity that I get. So that's why I can't waste a service. That's why I can't waste any moment. That's why I can't waste a day. But I've got to be in his presence. I've got to be communing with him because I want to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. I want us to pray this morning.